Today's episode of the two-man power trip of wrestling is number 450. Thank you to all the fans that have been a part of this great ride and this unbelievable journey of 450 episodes. And today's episode is brought to you by Lumen. That's Lumen.me. The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the Two Man Power Trip. Hi, folks. I'm WWE Hall of Famer Hacksaw Jim Duggan. If you'd like hearing knock knock jokes or jokes about your grandmother, go somewhere else. Oh! Oh my God! This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the Two Man Power Trip podcast. This is Cody Rhodes, and you are listening to Two Man Power Trip. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. This is a uh, special visitor, the hardcore legend, Mick Foley. It was a very rough feud to go through with Rick. It was a very bitter feud, too. He certainly didn't like me at that time, and I didn't like him, and we were both trying to be at the top. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that, and every kid, they knew they could kick the shit out of me. Me. At this point, well, I'll be at a signing, and little kids will come up to me and throw up the click sign or talk about, oh, your ladder match with Sean at WrestleMania 10. I go, wait a minute, you weren't even a glimmer in your dad's eye. But yeah, bro, it's really flattering and, and amazing and humbling. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chaz, the two-man power trip of wrestling. As a regular feature in the New World Wrestling Federation magazine, we look forward to uh, a column to be written by Roddy Piper under the name in uh, Piper's Pit. Uh, with that in mind, ladies and gentlemen, the views expressed in Piper's Pit, those of Roddy Piper and his guests, not necessarily those of us here, on Championship Wrestling. So with that in mind, we're going to take you now to Piper's Pit. Well, welcome, welcome, welcome. Tonight, uh, this week on Piper's Pit, we have with us Mr. Tony Gurria, who has been five times world's heavyweight champion and Tony I know you've been an extremely good tag team wrestler uh, the problem that I find here is winning the tag team world's tag team championship five times all that really means is you've lost the world's tag team championship five times now I know your partners uh, Rick Martel for instance who is a tremendous tag team wrestler do you feel any animosity yourself towards your partners or do you feel it just because of yourself possibly you have not been the partner that they should have had possibly you did not train quite as hard after all you lost the thing five times in a row uh, that's uh, that's an enormous record and a, and a tremendous Mr. Piper, you must remember to... Just one second, wait till I'm finished, just one second here. Five times in a row, to, to lose a world title five times in a row, and having five different partners, with the exception of Martel two times, must tell you something, must tell you that it's... Mr. Piper, as I was trying to say, to lose it five times... Just wait, wait, wait one second. Le please let me finish my point. My point is this. 
If you have the title five times in a row with five different partners and you lose the thing five times in a row, maybe the fault does not lie with the... Piper, excuse me, how many times have you had the world wrestling? Just wait a second. How many times have I held it? I have, I have been a world champion. I have been a... Mr. Piper, just before I leave, I'd like to tell you one thing. I said I would never be seen dead wearing a skirt. Obviously, obviously, when someone has nothing less nothing else to say the lowest form of humor or wit is is, is is desecration like that and if that's the way he wants to be he just proves the man that he is hello and welcome back to the two-man power trip of wrestling this is the flagship interview series a part of the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcasting empire i am jp john Paz, and today the episode is with an absolute WWF legend Tony Gurria. You may know him as a former five-time WWWF World Tag Team Champion with many different partners, which we talk about in the interview. He was a tag team partner and tag team champion with Haystacks Calhoun, Dean Ho, Larry Zabisco, and two times with Rick the Model Martel. Well, before he was the model, just Rick Martel. And we go into all the workings and all the happenings in the WWF from all the errors that he was around. He was in the Bruno era. He was around in the Pedro Morales era, the Superstar Billy Graham era, the Bob Backlund era, the Hogan era. And then as he moved into becoming a road agent and a producer behind the scenes, he was a part of the New Generation era, the Attitude era, the Ruthless Aggression era, the PG era, and whatever the hell you want to call the era that happened after that. So he has been around for a very, very long time, 40 plus years in the WWF from 1972 all the way to 2014 and we run the gamut we talk about everything in his career but this is a very lengthy interview this is a great amount of time speaking with his absolute legend this very very rare hard to get interview tony Garia. so i'll kind of let you guys enjoy this but before i send it off to everything and send it off to the interview just want to also pump up the rest of the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcast empire We've got Rick Bassman's Talking Tough on Podcast One's Launchpad. We've got Dr. Tom's Taking You to School on the TMPT feed. We have Shane Douglas's Triple Threat Podcast on Russo's The Brand. And then, of course, last but not least, Dutch Mantel's University of Dutch over on the MLW Radio Network. So right now, let's send it on over to a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling. And then right after that, we'll send it on over to the interview with an absolute legend, Tony Gurria. And now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Raslin Pal. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review. We would love to hear your feedback. Check out the feed for awesome past episodes, including Bruno San Martino, Sean Mike, Dusty Rhodes, Jerry Lawler, Terry Funk. Goldberg, Ray Mysterio Jr., Arn Anderson, and Glenn Kane Jacobs, and so many more. While you're on the web, visit ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. Visit our store, visit J.J. Dillon's store, Francine's store, and of course, the franchise Shane Douglas' store. For all you Android users out there, find us on Google Play and Player FM. For all you iOS users, check us out on TuneIn Radio, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Automatic, and now Stitcher. And of course, check out the Empire. Yes, that is the TMPT Empire now. TMPTEmpire.com. 
for all the latest and greatest on the two-man power trip of wrestling. And now, without any further ado, a former big-time wrestling NWA tag team champion, a former five-time WWE WF World Tag Team Champion. He is an absolute legend in the business, spending 40 years in the World Wrestling Federation. He is Mr. Tony Gurria. Please enjoy. NWA Tag Team Champion, a former five-time WWF World Tag Team Champion. He is a WWF legend. He is Mr. Tony Gurria. Tony, welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you very much. Certainly good to be here. And you might say talk to somebody in this day and age. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what in the world have you been up to lately? Because uh, probably not much, right? No, not a lot. I was in New Zealand for like six weeks, and I came back um, on the 16th of March. If I had a booked a little later, I would have been uh, stuck there for another month. But um, as it happened, I, I got out. It was just luck of the draw, I guess. But now I'm down in Florida, and I'm stuck here. You know, it's... Uh, well, it's all over, and I guess it's for the best, you know. So, haven't been doing much. Just get up and go for a walk in the morning and mess around the house. 
Yeah, isn't this crazy? We're uh, we're trapped with this, you know, quarantine, this whole pandemic, yeah. COVID, coronavirus, whatever you want to say, right? I mean, we're we're pretty much trapped in uh, quarantine for now. Yep. Yeah, it's strange. And a hell, a hell of an impact on the economy. Yeah, that's that's a killer. And all these, if you want to look at wrestling, all these wrestling shows and everything else doing empty arenas. And, oh, yeah. You know, there's no fans. It's killing wrestling. Yeah. Oh, like the old boys used to say, and I guess I'm an old boy now, you can't kill it. No matter what you do, <laughs> you can't kill wrestling. It's there for life. Yeah, yeah, that is true. It just seems to be hurting right now, you know, with they're doing empty arena shows and really kind of just yeah. trying to figure out what to do and how to do these live shows and, you know, how to pull off WrestleMania and things like that. So WWE is kind of doing, I guess, you know, whatever they can do and figure out to uh, pull off these shows for TV. Yeah. It's got to be hard on the guys, you know, wrestling in front of uh, nobody. Empty arenas, you know. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, they seem to be getting it done. Yeah. And I know you're probably not used to really wrestling in front of empty arenas. You know, obviously your days in the WWF were pretty much jam packed, right? I mean, the number one territory, uh, always kind of uh, just a great, great atmosphere. And like the Northeast was always great for professional wrestling, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you went to places anywhere, you know, from Washington, D.C. to Boston, and uh, I probably think uh, Boston had the wildest fans when I was wrestling. But when we wrestled there, we 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 played to the audience. You know, we uh, we you know let them let them wait. You know, for the next uh, spot. And it was uh, there was a lot of psychology involved in the matches. And uh, we just controlled them the best that we could. Some guys were excellent at doing that. Excellent. Yeah, it's definitely a different time. I mean, obviously now they really can't get empty arena, but even when they had the crowds there, it seemed like a total different philosophy and a total different psychology as far as them not really playing to the crowd as much. It's just almost like a set match. And they're doing the match no matter what the crowd reacts. Yeah, yeah, they they have their match in the heads and, and they go out there and uh, and they do it uh, like a uh, almost like making a movie or or a TV show, you know. Uh, but when we were there, I remember a superstar Billy Graham in the Philadelphia Arena. And it was that beautiful summer's day, and I'm driving down there, and I'm saying, "Boy, nobody's going to be here today because they'll all be at Wildwood or at Atlantic City." Anyway, as it was, they sold out. They had 19,000. And Billy and I locked up, and he said, "He said, what are we going to do?" I said, "Well, let's see what happens." And we stayed in a referee's position for maybe three or four minutes, and and they came. You know, the people they. They responded. It was it kind of shocked me a little bit, you know. But it was the psychology of it, you know, like, oh, you know, Billy can't do anything with me. I can't do anything with Billy. I was just waiting for something to happen. And playing off the crowd, right? I mean, waiting for them to yeah. kind of, yeah, right? 
Yeah, that's what you did. And it was great, you know. I used to watch old timers when Strongbow was, uh, I came up here when Strongbow was at his peak. And I used to watch him. And I said, what the hell is he doing? You know, I'm a young fellow. <laughs> I'm, in the, I'm in the business, you know, full time for uh, uh, almost a year. And I'm looking at him and looking, I'm looking at his matches. Uh, I never missed any of his matches. I just wanted to see what he was doing, and I couldn't figure it out for the longest time. It was like he didn't do anything. <laughs> you know, as far as, you know, like the other young guy, you go out there, you know, your arm dragging, drop kicking, taking back drops, taking hip tosses, you know, slams over the top rope. Not, I, I seen Strongbow take, one good bump, and that was uh, Greg Valentine gave it to him. What was what was like the the thought process? Like he was basically letting the crowd kind of or controlling the crowd kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. He he had his way of wrestling, and uh, you know he, he he told the story that he he wasn't the guy to be messed. With you know, and uh, and his opponent knew that, but then uh, he gave his opponent, you know, most of the match. You know, he just sold everything he did, and that was it. And then they just waited for the comeback. It's simple, really. Once you got it, you know. Yeah, right. It's simple but effective, and it feels like yeah. guys like that and guys like that era, Chief J. Strumble, used to get such strong reactions, and a lot of guys mm. today can't get a reaction. They'll do, you know, a 450 somersault plancha, or whatever, yeah. and they get no reaction. Yeah. Well, I used to tell some of the guys, you know, Russell with some guys, said, what are we going to do, Tony? And I said, uh, you know, I'll get get the end of the match down and maybe the front of it. I thought, just play it by ear, you know, after I'd been in it a little little while, you know, and they'd be all nervous about going out there, and then they'd come back and they'd say, oh, my God, that's about the best match I had, you know. Not tooting my horn or anything, but, the, you know, it was just fact. You know, we had the um, Samoans in, uh, in Philadelphia for the first time in Gorilla Monsoon was the agent there. And he said, well, you guys uh, go out there. We need about 15 minutes. And I I can't remember exactly the outcome of the match. But we talked about it, and I told, the you know, the Samoans, I said, you guys can beat the shit out of us. Oh, can I say that on the radio? Hell, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 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 Sorry. You know, you can beat the hell out of it, and the people know that. So you've got to give the people some confidence in us, you know. So I, I, I set a format. It was Rick and I, you know, and we went out there, and uh, first time we'd ever been in the ring together, and, you know, toot my horn again. We had a, a hell of a match there. Well, not just me, but the four of us. And, and because they listened to my psychology, and um, and we came back after the match, and the the oh, they were just like holy hell! I didn't know it could be that good. <laughs> hmm. And it's great because I see them from time to time after Seeker. You know, I uh, 
I seen them at, I went to uh, Rocky's funeral, you know, which isn't a good time to meet everybody, but that's usually what you do, what happens now. And they were there. So it's, you know, it's good to see the old, old guys once in a while. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and you were talking about the Samoans. You guys, is that when you guys beat them for the, uh, the tag titles, you and Rick Martell? Yeah. I don't know if it was that night. Or not? I I I'm not too much up on when we, you know, when I won a title and when I dropped it. Uh, you know, you'd have to remind <laughs> remind hmm. me because there was a few of them, you know. But I was basically in the business. It was a job. I was there to make a living. It wasn't my decision, you know, to become, you know, tag team champions. That was Vince uh, Seniors and. Um, I just went with it, like when they put me with haystacks. Uh, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I have heard the rumor that there were supposed to be Ray Stevens and Nick Bonkwinkle come in and wrestle uh, Fuji and Tanaka for the summer, and they canceled out. They were double booked or something. So now Vince was kind of stuck. So Haystacks comes in for the summer, and I was rookie of the year, and I was the young, you know, the young fella on on the on the card. So they put us together, and um, uh, you, you know, Fuji and Tanaka couldn't do much with Haystacks, so they kept me in the ring most of the time, you know, which I didn't mind, and uh, and we got over, you know. Mm-hmm. Because they wanted to see me tag the big guy, and uh, you, you know, once the match got settled and, and that was it, they just beat the living Christ out of me, you know, till I could make the tag, and uh, and that was it. You know, it was business, and that was, you know, my strategy, if you could call it that of the business. It was a job. It was business. And I conducted it, you know, the best way that I could, you know. Mm-hmm. And the hot tag to Haystack's Calhoun, who's, you know, obviously a yeah. huge, huge monster, is not going to work a lot of the match, but that is yeah. great. You're kind of working the match. You're doing all the work. He gets the hot tag and the crowd yeah. acts appropriately. Yeah. And I didn't have a problem with that. At one time, Madison Square Garden, it was a 33-minute match. I was in the ring for 27 minutes. <laughs> Wow, awesome. But, but you know, I, I'm not complaining about it. You know, it was just a fact. And, uh, you know, and I didn't mind because, you know, we gave the crowd what they wanted. You know, they they wanted to see Haystacks in there. <laughs> and that's what we gave them. Did you enjoy teaming with Haystacks? Is that was that because you were like kind of known yeah. as like a great tag team specialist? Always, obviously, five time tag team champion, but like always kind of had different partners. But it always seemed to mesh well. Did you like chemistry and work with Haystacks? Yeah, yeah, because I liked that because I you know because I knew when I made the tag, you know, there was going to be this huge pop, and you know, the people we were going to satisfy the people to a degree, you know, and then you know it's funny we. Uh, Vince gave us uh, uh, a finish, a finishing move, and I bet, and I'm not going to tell you what it was, but, uh, and I'm just wondering if anybody knows what it was. Hmm. With Haystacks and I, it was our finishing move. 
<laughs> Ooh, great question. I have no idea. It's a great question. Yeah, yeah. I, that just dawned on me uh, just now. Yeah, it was. You know, it wasn't uh, you know a great suplex off the top rope or anything like that. It was just it was very simple, but uh, it was effective. The people loved it. But I'm not I'm not telling anybody. They got to tell me. I know what it was. <laughs> uh, I wonder if it had anything to do with uh, haystack splashing somebody. I don't know. Possibly. Yeah, yeah. That, you know that was part one. Mm. Yeah. Nice. And then after haystacks, they put you with Dean Ho. You guys also yeah. win the tag titles. What did you think about yeah. teaming up with Dean? Yeah, Dean was uh, good. I, I I enjoyed it. You know, like I said, that the business to me was a job. You know, and uh, I always figured I I worked hard even before I got in the business. You know, uh, you know, doing my concreting and bricklaying and whatever I had to do back in New Zealand. And and Dean was good, and the thing Dean came in, uh, and what made it good with Dean, you know, he was uh, Oriental. Well, he was from Hawaii, you know, mm-hmm. Hawaii, but he had the uh, the karate and the kung fu and all that stuff. So he was uh, a- a- anti uh, uh, Tanaka and Fuji, you know. So so that was a, another uh, thing where you know people would want to see me tag Dean and then he'd come in with his uh you know kung fu and karate and stuff and people would pop on that yeah oh yeah and you guys <laughs> you guys are another kind of good popular team but it didn't last too long cuz the Valiant brothers come along and they beat you guys but it's yeah. one of those things where you ever I know you said it was a job and it's you just do kind of what you're told but are you ever thinking like, oh, this could have been more long term, or you you're just kind of looking for the next thing anyway? No, I just uh, you know rode along with the uh, with the uh, with the tide. I guess you know whatever's going to happen is going to happen. You know, give me a job and I'll do the best that I can. You know, it was like. Um, uh, you know, Harley Race came in as NWA champion, and, and this was the first time the NWA belt, I believe, was ever defended in Madison Square Garden, which was outside the NWA territory. And uh, and Vince, you know, he never asked me or anything, you know. He, he told me after he made the match, you know, that I was going to work with Harley. You know, and I said, "Holy shit!" Hmm. You know, I'm I'm still a young fellow, you know, and here's Harley. You know, he's been in the business a good number of years. You know, never worked, you know, never wrestled him before, and um, I thought we had a pretty decent match. You know, he was happy with it. You know, so that's uh, awesome because, like you said, the NWA title being defended in the WWF in the WWF home territory, really, in yeah. MSG, the home base. Pretty yeah. kind of amazing to make that deal. And you were the one selected uh, to be in the match. It's pretty uh, yeah. amazing kind of looking back. Yep. What did he kind of say as far as, like, how come 
he wanted you in that match. He just thought that was going to be a great match, and you kind of deserved yeah, it. Well, I, I heard I heard it from you know um, years later. I heard you know from third hand or whatever you know, to, that you know he needed to put somebody in there that would uh, you know give Harley a good match, and uh, so he, you know he could trust. You know, so I felt quite that uh, that was quite a compliment. You know that uh, Vince thought that much of me. You know to give me the opportunity to go in there. Yeah, it's a huge compliment. Basically saying like, all right, Tony's a great worker. I trust Tony. He's mm-hmm. going against one of the number one guys in the world. So that's pretty much putting a ton of faith in you. Yeah. Yeah, so it was good. I enjoyed it anyway. One of the matches I won't forget. Yeah, I could <laughs> believe that. Did you kind of like when you went into basically a singles run there? And obviously, against Harley Race is great. But as mm. far as being a singles run, because it seemed like you were almost like a tag specialist for, for an extended period. Yeah, well, I came, I, I came in uh, with a guy from Australia. We were a tag team down in, Australia, uh, in Florida when we first came in, you know. And then when then he went home, and, uh, and uh, you know, I kind of had to make a, a move from Florida uh, because financially, you know, I wasn't doing that good there. They didn't have me in a position. And I was green, you know. I was young. And... Uh, and then Eddie Graham got me booked up. He talked to Vince Senior and uh, booked me up in New York, you know. And I went there. I went there as a single. And then when that happened, uh, the tag team with Haystacks. That's when I got into the tag team things, you know. And then they brought Dean in, you know, and that worked. And then I left for a year and came back. And then they hooked me up with uh, Sabisco. Uh, yeah, for a while, you know, yep. and then after that, it was Rick Martel for two runs with the belt, you know. So it just happened that way. But I was um, I was happy with singles, you know. I remember having single matches with uh, Fuji in the Garden. Another one in the Garden was Lonnie Main. You know, we beat the bejesus out of us, you know, out of each other. Mm-hmm. And then, and Don Leo Jonathan, too, you know. And uh, I remember working with Don, and uh, I came out, and I, the, the guys were, you know, behind the curtain looking at the match like, holy shit. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. I went 18 minutes with them. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, he, unfortunately, he just passed away recently. Yeah, he was a freak athlete too. Yeah, yeah. Good guy, good guy. You know. Yep, great wrestler too. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. You kind of were there uh, with like a lot of different partners. I know you didn't win the tag titles with him, and he kind of passed. I guess not really as recently as reported, but uh, Rene Goulet was another uh, tag yeah. partner of yours too. Yeah, we had a few matches together. Rene Goulet, there was Eddie Gilbert. Uh, we were there for a while. I think uh, uh, Brian Brian Blair, we had a few matches together. Yep. Mm. 
you were kind of like the go-to guy, the, uh, the you know, like I said, the tag specialist, but the go-to guy. They were trying to kind of sample, I guess, a lot of different tag teams for you. Yeah, I, I guess so, you know. Like, I, I I was just happy to be working, you know, and, uh, you know, whatever they wanted, you know, that was fine with me. What did you think of Larry Zbysko when you first started working with him? Obviously, this is before he kind of uh, becomes even a bigger star. What did you think about Larry? Oh, no, I liked Larry. I got as soon as he came in, as a matter of fact, you know, while he was looking for a place to stay, I had him stay with me, you know. And, uh, you know, he was a a very good uh, amateur wrestler, too, you know, and um, is very technical, like in in the ring, you know, but uh, you know my my whole deal was like Jack Briscoe uh, said to me when I was then when I first came. He said, "If you don't sell, you can't make a comeback." You know, so that was my uh, philosophy in the ring. You know, to go in, get my stuff over real quick, and then you know, fight from underneath, you know, for the best part of the match. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, a lot of other guys, you know, in my position, they wanted to look a little strong, you know. But my thing was, if you throw everything at me, including the kitchen sink, and I'm still getting up, I got to be a pretty tough son of a bitch. <laughs> right, right, yep. If If you look at it that way, you know, I mean... Uh, and uh, you look at some of the the, the old timers, like that's what they did, you know. It was very easy. One of the best heels I worked with, I think, was Ray Stevens. He was an absolute natural, and he had that crowd psychology down pat. Boy, he was. He was unreal. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely one of the absolute best. You yeah. enjoyed being more of a babyface than being a heel? Yeah, I never was a heel. I was going to try it one time. I think it was working with her, Lanny Poffo, and he was a babyface. But Lanny had a bad neck. You know, he was injured. Mm-hmm. So I really couldn't do it. Do it but... I had uh, I had a bit of a problem getting the heel psychology down. You know, I might have been able to get it. I don't know, but in Just, a different kind of way. You know, I couldn't be a, a like an Ivan Koloff or a George Steele. You know what I what mm-hmm. I mean? I yeah, yeah. I I just have to be. Uh, a sneaky son of a gun, I think. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Mm. Rather than that, like that monster heel or that like uh, villainous guy from a, from another country. Gotcha. Yep. Yeah. As far as Rick Mortel, I wanted to kind of bring it back to him and mention him because it seemed yeah. like your team with him was kind of the most popular and perhaps the most successful, obviously two tag team title runs, but it seemed yeah. like he was the most popular and the most successful team. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think so, yeah. And it was funny, we, we, we were interviewed one time. We were, at a, uh, we were in Houston at a WWE 
e um, uh, pay-per-view, and they interviewed us, and we said virtually the same thing uh, without knowing we were going to say it, you know. And we weren't in the room at the same time, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that was like we didn't even have to, you know, communicate. We just knew what we had to do, you know. If you yeah, can you follow that, yeah, you yeah. know, like, yep. Okay, he'd look at me, and that was it. I knew what I knew what the next move had to be, and um, and, and we did it. I think probably because we worked, you know, so long together, you know, and and I actually, we kind of actually became like brothers, you know, and. Uh, and it was a good relationship, that, you know, that we had. And I'm very happy for him. He retired early. And uh, he got into real estate up in Quebec. And he done very well. Yes, yeah, seems like he's kind of uh, not as done with wrestling, but he really hasn't been doing anything because he's probably – you know, just happily retired and oh, yeah. doesn't need the business anymore. Yeah, he's retired and uh, he's happily married. He's got a daughter that's, uh, I think, she's 17 now. She'll be going to college soon. So, you know, he's all into the family. Yeah. Yeah. And it feels like the be- you guys did have the best chemistry. Like you're saying, you don't even need to talk or you don't even need to communicate. It's almost like a mental telepathy kind of thing where you yeah. guys just know what you're going to do. Yeah, absolutely. As far as some of the teams you guys wrestled, I mean, if you just think about the, you mentioned the Samoans, the Moon Dogs, the Valiants, yeah. Yeah. all great kind of teams, right? Great heels to go up against too. Yeah, and then there was Fuji and Saito also. Oh yes, yes, and uh, can't forget them. Yep. Mm. There was a uh, the Moon Dogs. We wrestled them on Sunday night in Torrington, Connecticut, at a high school. This was the first time. And on the Monday night, we were going to be in Madison Square Garden. Well, those guns, like uh, uh, Rex was, I don't know, he must have been 350 pounds. And then uh, Randy Colley, you know, and he passed away recently too, I think. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Sadly, yeah. Yeah, and he was probably 300 pounds. So Rick and I, uh, I'm about 240, 245. Rick's probably 230. And uh, we go in there, and Christ almighty, we couldn't do a thing. It was like wrestling with a... (laughs) (laughs) It was like like wrestling with a concrete pillar, you know? You know, one of those pillars that hold the, the front of the building up? Yeah. So... We got through the match, and it was just hopeless, you know. And I told them we went to the dressing room. And I said, Christ, Christ. I said, that was bloody horrible. I said, if we do this tomorrow night, we can forget about, you know, doing any anything. And anyway, uh, I explained my psychology to them. And, you know, I'm not a bully or anything. I just want things done right and easy, you know. Yeah, and uh, I talked to them, and and they understood, I think. And we went in the garden, and the match was like night and day. Yeah, so we had a good little run with them too. 
Today's episode is brought to you by Illumin. Go to Illumin.me and learn all about life's most important hack, the metabolism hack. Lumen is working to improve the world's metabolic health and quality of life. Lumen is the first device to measure a person's metabolism in real time. This is going to tell if your body is using the fats for fuel or carbs for fuel and provide you with personalized daily meal plans and insights to help you reach your goals. Lumen Science is rooted in years of validation research conducted by their two founders and chief scientists. Please use the code TWOMANPOWER25 to get $25 off. Yes, that is TWOMANPOWER25 to get $25 off. That is Lumen.me. Yes, Lumen, the world's best metabolism hack. Yeah, no doubt about it. Definitely great run with the Moondogs. Yeah. Now, as far as kind of going through, like we were talking about how you were kind of like that, that tag team specialist and you're kind of going through – and at the kind of the tail end, they try to do a team with Eddie Gilbert, like you said, and B. Mm. Brian Blair. It doesn't kind of work out, but then you kind of get into like that singles run. It's almost like you're not really winning a lot of matches anymore. You're kind of like the enhancement guy or the guy yeah. that's put, putting the other guys over. Did you like that role and being put into that role as you kind well, of went to the twilight of your career? Yeah, well, I, I did. I did at a certain time. If I, You know, I just want to go in there and have a, have a match with a guy, you know, and, and and my psychology there was that if you're going to beat somebody, make him look good, and then beat him. And uh, you know it's it's very easy. But uh, this was at the time when Vince had just started up. It was around '85, and he was bringing these guys here that you know they look good, but that's about all. Right. And, and it wasn't their fault. They didn't. They didn't know. They didn't know how to work, you know. So I was protecting myself a lot of the time in there, you know. But if I had a guy that, you know, I knew, and then I just want to go there, have one hell of a match and just do the job and get out. But a lot of times, yeah, I was bloody protecting myself. Otherwise, I could have got hurt. I wrestled the uh, biggest crowd to that point up in Toronto, it was, what's his name, Arcidi? Is that the guy, you remember him? Ted, Ted Arcidi, yes. Ted Arcidi, yeah, yeah I yep. wrestled him, and, you know, he was a big 610-pound bench presser and everything. Yeah, he was amazing, and, yeah. Yeah, and I said to Ted, I said, you know, we're going to go about this amount of time. I said, just please, I said, just listen to me. And uh, and he did, and uh, you know I had a match set, and he, we followed along those lines, and um, and I got out of it unscathed. <laughs> <And I, laughs> Thank God. <laughs> I, I, I put him over, you know, and I I thought I I put him over right, you know. But he he listened. If the guys were, and it's. It's so weird because you see some of the guys, even when I was an agent, right? And I, I tell guys, you know, do this. I wouldn't tell them how to have the match. Go out, have your match, and I'll correct it, you know, if something's wrong. And I tell them, and them would disagree with me. And I said, well, listen, just do, will you do, do me this? 
tomorrow night you're working with this guy. Just do what I to do, and if it doesn't work, just forget it. I ever I ever talked about it, you know. So mm-hmm. they, so they went out and they had the they had the match, and then the guy that I was talking to about it. They did what I told them to do, and it worked. And then it comes back, but I'm an agent, but I'm hiding from them. <laughs> because yeah. I knew he'd be yeah. looking for me. Right? Right. So finally he finds me. He said, Tony, it worked. And I said, what worked? He said, what you talked about. Did you see it? I said, yeah, I seen it. <laughs> <laughs> He couldn't believe it, but uh, I mean, you almost, and it's not for my benefit that I'm doing it, you know, I'm doing it for their benefit because if they become better workers, you know, they're going to get, you know, they're going to get the shots and they're going to make the money. Point, yeah. Now, as far as kind of Vince Jr. and him taking over, and you mentioned that that match against Orsini, obviously that's the big event, Toronto, Canada, Hogan, Orndorff, huge, 75000 yeah. And that's kind of when you guys were really, really cooking. I mean, the WWF was making money hand over fist, the Hulk Hogan era, the rock and wrestling era. What did you think about Vince McMahon Jr. compared to Vince McMahon Sr.? Well, they're two different people, you know, uh, as, you know, when Vince Sr., uh, you know, walked into the room, you know, he just commanded something, you know, like he was tall, about six foot three, I think. He was in a three-piece suit, you know, he had the salt and pepper hair, very quiet man, you know, and he just, like, you knew he was there. His presence, there was just something about that. That man, and you know, and he'd done his thing here like he knew we were going to do business like mid-January through or maybe mid-April, and then it was going to die off a little bit. And then we're going to do business uh, in the summertime. That's when he bought the midgets in, he bought the girls in, and he bought haystacks in. So he Mm -hmm. had his formula, you know. But then Vince uh, Jr., you know, he seen, you know, what the other guys were doing, like uh, Charlotte was going up to Ohio and Toronto, and we used to go to Toronto too. So they were branching out a little bit, and I think Vern Gagne, he was going to Denver and into California, Northern California, I think. So... They were doing that little bit of thing, and I think Vince just said, "Well, Christ, you know, maybe you know he could do the whole lot." And uh, I didn't know what he was doing, you know. I was just just there, just one of the boys, and uh, you know, some of the guys done really well. You know, a lot of guys, you know, lost. I don't say lost their jobs, but there were there was no work for a lot of guys too. So, but it worked out. But it makes me wonder, like, how, if they didn't go quite so much showboat, you know, would they be doing any better? Right, you know? more sports entertainment versus pro wrestling. Yeah, yeah. 
I've often thought, like I've had guys when I was there, there were a couple of guys, I think Snitsky and one other guy, and I thought they were great. Now, we used to do the TV shows. It wasn't Raw and it wasn't uh, SmackDown. It was the other TV shows. uh, I forget the name of them. So I used to put them together, and I had that, and I thought, you know, those those guys, you know, if they just squash no names, you know, jobbers just squash them, squash them, squash them, and then mix up with a jobber and a halfway decent guy and give them a little hope, but still, you know, build a story with the guys, but old-time, mm-hmm. old-time wrestling. And I still think, I still think it's worth, if you, but who have you got that has the psychology now? Shit. The youngest guy is probably 50 years old <laughs> <laughs> that worked in our era, you know? Yeah, yep. Yeah, nobody's, uh, not a lot of guys left from that era. That's that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, that's, well, that was my career and it's over now. <laughs> hmm. Well, how did you kind of transition to being the road agent role? Because you literally, if you look at your career, you're there kind of basically for the Bruno era and uh, Pedro Morales and then the Bob yeah. Backlund era, yeah. superstar Billy Graham. You're there for the Hogan era, which might, mm-hmm. might be the biggest one. Then, you know, you're still there. They, Vince Jr. obviously trusts you just as much as Vince Sr. did, and you transition into the road agent role. So how did that all come about? Yeah, well, they were looking for another road agent because we were running like three towns a, a night, I think four at one time, and um, – and there were two. We had two agents. We had the primary agent and the secondary. So I started off as a secondary with uh, uh, Jay Strongbow, mm-hmm. and uh, and he taught. You know, he taught me quite. Well, he did. He taught me a lot. You know about being the agent too. You know, but as a, uh, a secondary agent, I I done the um, the box office. You know the settlements, you know, how many tickets sold, you know, at this price, at that price. Of course, it was all there, but I just went over it, you know, and then there was extra things. Was there a Did we have a telephone or did we not? You know, a forklift, did we use a forklift? You know, there was catering and all that. And pretty soon I got to the point where I could just look at something and say, well, that doesn't seem right, and I just question it, you know. Like there was one one time uh, in one of the big arenas, there was a credit card charge for $15,000. Oh. That seems like a lot. And I mentioned it, you know, and I said, this seems like quite a bit. And I'd done the numbers, you know, quietly, and the numbers worked out right, but I still wasn't happy with it. didn't sound right. So anyway, I said, well, what did we do last time we were here? And, you know, it was close, but it was a little different. But the credit card charges were only $7,000. So I said, well, this doesn't make sense to me. And I looked at it. They charged this for every ticket sold. There was an $8,000 discrepancy. And pulled that out, you know, of my head because... It, I, it just didn't feel right. So what did you end up doing about it? 
Well, you know, they, they went through it and they found, they said, oh, my God, you know, we've charged you for every ticket, you know, as a credit card ticket. And it wasn't. So with things like that, uh, and then I became the primary agent, you know, where I had to make decisions. But I was in touch with Pat Patterson or Vince at the time, you know, whoever I could get hold of. Mainly it was Pat. At one time we were in St. Louis, and I think it was the 1st of January, 1st or 2nd, and it was snowing, and everybody was there except the warlord and Hulk Hogan. And Hulk was the main event with uh, with uh, Henning. Uh, Mr. Perfect. Mr. Perfect, yeah. Mm-hmm. So he, he was trying to get in on his plane, but it was snowing and it wouldn't allow it. So he made the announcement uh, at the end of the first match. And then we made another announcement that it wouldn't get there. And then we made an announcement finally that when we knew he wasn't going to land, you know, he said, you know, we made the announcement that they would not let Hulk Hogan's plane plane land at Lambert Airport in St. Louis. So it was their fault. It wasn't Hulk's fault. (laughs) (laughs) I said that, yeah, I said that, and uh, at that time, George Steele was the secondary agent, and he said, what are we going to do, Tony? What are we going to do? Well, I was in touch with Pat, you know. I said, well, we'll have a battle royal, but he kept asking me, and I said, well, I don't know, you know, because I can't make a decision if something happens, then I got to change it again. And there's so many people that have to know, you know, what the change is. So if you're going from one change to another change, then you're going to say, well, what the hell is going on? So I kind of leave it to the last. Anyway, uh, we made the announcement that Hope's plane couldn't land and, you know, you could get their money back. I think only 600 people went and got their money back. And there, there was probably about 17,000 there. And then we had a, uh, a battle royal, and it came down to Dusty and uh, Mr. Perfect. And then they had about an eight, eight nine-minute match, and then we had Dusty, you know, get his hand raised. And everybody was happy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. So, and... Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. What were you going to say? No, and then the next day we had a double shot. We had Dayton and Columbus, and we were flying into Columbus, but we couldn't get out. So then I'm in touch with the office, you know, and they said, well, see if we can rent a plane. I said, you don't understand. It's snowing. (laughs) (laughs) Planes aren't going out, so we had to cancel Dayton, but we got in for Columbus later on. (laughs) That is great, and and you kind of had to deal with a lot of stuff. I'm sure being the head agent stuff, not working right or, you know, different things kind of going awry. So what's kind of the responsibility of, of the head agent? Well, he, he's just there basically to see everything, you know, goes right uh, in, in the, uh, you know, for, for the event, you know, like this guy wrestles, this guy, this guy wrestles, this guy, you know, and just, and have about, I think we were having about two and a half hour events at that time, which to me, two and a half hours was plenty. Mm-hmm. Perfect. But sometimes they gave us too many, like one time in, uh, 
in Nassau Coliseum, you know, you've got you've got a 35-yard walk to the ring, 100 feet or better, and you got like 11 matches. That's 22 entrances and exits, and it went like three hours and 20 minutes. And Jerry was Jerry Briscoe was the agent. He said, Tony, why was it so long? I said, Jerry, you got 11 matches. You got 22 entrances, maybe 24 with tag teams, you know, different guys, you know. And then you got exits, you know, they got to get out of the ring. There's just no way you can do it unless you, you go in there and you give people, you know, five minute match, you know, which isn't fair. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So, you know, some things you, you couldn't help. And then, you know, if there was a problem with transportation and you were on the road. Like one time I was in Bangor, Maine, and we had to go to uh, Halifax the next day, and there was a big snowstorm came through uh, Pittsburgh and uh, through Washington, uh, Boston. So I got up early in the morning, you know, and I called up. It was a beautiful day up in uh, Bangor. It was cold. It was about 32 degrees. But blue sky, there wasn't a cloud in the sky. And I called up about the flight, you know, because we had to make a connection through Boston. And they said, oh, that flight's canceled, you know, no, no planes out of Boston. I said, oh, Christ. So I called up uh, Northwest. Well, actually, it was Northwest. And I said, well, can you get a plane that, to carry, oh, I think 19 wrestlers with the average weight of 260 pounds and two bags each. Hmm. Right. So anyway, they said, well, we'll get back to you. And anyway, we got two 19-seaters planes, you know, and we, we never missed the show. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And they Smart. got stuck in Boston for, I think, I mean, not in Boston, in Pittsburgh for three days. Wow. One of the guys tried to go home. He was, he lived in Detroit. He was going to drive home, and the cop stopped him and sent him back to the hotel. Wow. And as far as, like, your role there is, like, transportation is a big part of it, but do you, are you reporting back to, like, the Vince and letting him know all the oh, issues and, and the matches and things like that? Yeah, yeah. I had to, we had to make a report every night on a, um, what do you call it? Answer phone. You know, you'd call, you'd call up and uh, it'd be, good evening, gentlemen. Please leave your report at the sound of the beep. And you'd go through the whole match. And then uh, that would be typed out in the morning and sent to Vince and Pat. So they could uh, read what happened. Wow, so kind of your basically good match, bad match, crowd yep. reaction, uh, chemistry, like all, all that kind of stuff is involved? Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember in uh, Augusta, Georgia, there was a match there with Haku and um, Hacksaw Jim Duggan. And I thought it was a great match. You know, my opinion, you know, I mean, there was a good story told it, but the people didn't give a hoot about it. 
It was sad, really. Right. Because they worked so, you know, the, those guys worked so hard. And uh, just people just weren't into it. So, you know, you've got good matches, and then you, then, then you have matches that uh, stink to high heaven. And, uh, and people go crazy over them. So you just don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you never, never know. So are you timing out the show as well? You have to literally, like I know you mentioned how long the match, the show was, but are you kind of trying to time out the matches or is that something that comes from up above? Like, you know, like, like before you mentioned Gorilla Monsoon told you guys, ah, 15 minutes for you and the Samoans. <laughs> are you the one giving out the times to the guys? Yeah, I, you know, I can't. No, I think I think that came that came from uh, Pat, I think, but I I can't actually remember. But I I know if if things were going too long, like some guys, that's another thing some guys don't understand. Oh, I'm a superstar. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to stay out there as long as I can. Well, now they've seen you. They've seen you. They've seen you. They've seen you. Now they're sick of seeing you. You know, you just, you get out there, you do your thing, you don't overstay your welcome, and then you get out, because then they'll want to see more of you. Right. Makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, there were guys like that, too. Oh, no, they love us. They love us. And they say, oh, God almighty. You know, don't you understand? Yeah. And they've seen you, and they've seen you, seen you, then you just become an ordinary person. You know? Yeah, you lose the speciality of it, like to, yeah. if you see the yeah. person too much. Yeah. That was another thing used to bug me. Uh, you know, when, when Vince started running, then everybody would get hurt, and everybody knew he was hurt. Well, they, virtually nobody got it. They got hurt, but you didn't know about it because it was something special when somebody got hurt. And even with the hurt you know, was a work, was part of an angle. It, you know, it meant something. Okay. Yeah. Can, you, can you follow that logic? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it makes perfect sense. Injuries, if everybody's injured, it's kind of like, oh, God, like, you, who cares? But if one person's injured, it sticks out and actually is way more important and you really kind of feel it more as a fan. Exactly. You know, but, you know, uh, that's the way they want to do business, so that's it. Did you like working for Vince Jr. more so than Vince Sr., or you can't really decide or you know, who was easier to work for? No, I was, I was uh, all right with Vince. You know, I, I talked with Vince on the phone regularly, but I talked with Pat uh, when, when he was the booker, you know, more often, and then when Briscoe was the booker, I talked with him. More, more so than Vince, but Vince had a whole bunch of other shit, you know, he, mm-hmm. he had to do. And that's why he had uh, Pat there, you know. Pat was Vince, you know, and I was Pat, you know, so on the road. I was Vince on the road. Right, yeah. You know, had, to, had to make the decision. and uh, But it was... Uh, it was good. It's hard to explain. You know, when somebody 
So yeah, these fellows you say, oh, Tony, what do I have to do to be arrested? I said, you don't want to get arrested. Oh, yes, I do. I said, no, get a job at the post office. <laughs> <laughs> the post office, I said, yeah, look, you've got 40 hours a week. You've got sick pay. You've got a retirement there. Uh, you, you've got uh, hospitalization, and you've got holidays, paid holidays. And wrestling, you've got nothing. <laughs> yeah. You're an independent contractor, and you, yeah. you, you know you got to work 300 days a year. Oh yeah, I remember uh, it was Thanksgiving, and we were booked in a little town. I think in New, I think it was Concord, New Hampshire. I'm not sure. And there were two guys that had made arrangements for Thanksgiving to go home. You know, they weren't in there like I lived in Connecticut when I was up in that area so i was home and i i you know i work seven days a week sometimes more but uh they didn't show and vince fired them that was like when vince jr had uh taken over the business but these guys had made arrangements to go home you know be with their family and we never used to work thanksgiving we never used to work sundays I think one day when I was in the one week in the Carolinas, it was a long weekend, and that was their big weekend. Seven, eight, nine, ten. I think I worked eleven times one week. Wow. Yeah. I said done, done a TV show on Thursday, and then Thursday night went and wrestled, wow. and then a double shot on. Um, Double shot on the weekend. The life of a wrestler. You think that's kind of overkill, or you think that's a little maybe too much working that much? Yeah, especially when you're not making any money. Right. <laughs> yeah. And obviously, when you were at the WWF, I mean, Vince is making money hand over fist. So running yeah. like Survivor Series on Thanksgiving and running Sunday pay-per-views and stuff, I mean, he was really raking in the dough. But, yeah, I could see that schedule, I mean, being an absolute nightmare. Oh, yeah, when when he first started. I think some of the guys were on the road for something like 39 or 41 days, didn't get home, wrestled every day. It was brutal. What a crappy schedule. I mean, that that's just kind of insane to think about it. But, I mean, they were probably selling out all those shows. Oh, yeah, they were doing business for sure. Like, you know, I'd, I'd fly from Atlanta to Houston, and somebody else, would, uh, another a group would fly from uh, Houston into Atlanta, you know, to, for whatever reason. Yeah, that's kind of weird. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, not not to do Atlanta, but maybe to do Columbus, Georgia, or, or Macon, or, or something like that. And we might have been there. We might have been in Birmingham the night before. Alabama. Uh-huh. Yeah, so you had your A-town, your B-town, and then sometimes C-towns and D-towns, right? I mean, sometimes running four different yeah. towns a night. Yeah. I always thought it, was, it, it would have been a good idea if if they could have done it, uh, you know, put a couple of mainstreamers on the card and do the high schools and stuff like we used to do so the young fellas coming up would get the experience of working in front of a crowd. 
you know, around the uh, New York, New England area, like we used to do, you know. Yeah, little, makes sense. Oh, yeah, the small, the small, uh, small arenas and the colleges and. I know we did try to do something with them where the, uh, you sold the tickets, you got a percentage of the tickets, and we came in and we had the show. But, you know, it was a good idea, but it just got messed up. Like, I was, I was doing the books there one time in Indiana, you know, and uh, I said, well, I need all the unsold tickets. So they gave me the tickets. And... Uh, so I, I subtracted them and everything. Anyway, I, I got the money. This is what you owe me, and this is what you get. And it was only about $400. And they said, that's all? I said, well, if you've got any more tickets, I need all the unsold tickets. Right. And because that's the only way I can adjust this thing. But if you, if you can't get them tonight, and you do get them, then send them into the office, and um, and they'll make the adjustment. Yeah. So I, I guess what they were doing, they were giving the tickets away. Right. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. It's a it, it's a fundraiser for something, and and then they give the tickets away. Hmm. <laughs> crazy. Yeah. You know, you know it's crazy. Like kind of just thinking about you, like as a road agent. Basically, you spent your kind of almost whole life working for either WWWF or WWF, because not only are we talking about the Hogan era, but then the New Generation era, the you know the Bret Hart era. You're still yeah. there. Then then through the Attitude era with Steve Austin, that big era, and you're still there. Is it crazy to think how long and how many years you spent in the WWF? Yeah, it's uh, trying to think how long I was there. I think I was 72. I was out for about two and a half years, I think, from 72. September 20th, 72, I had my first television in Philadelphia. And then I can't even remember when I left. It was, I think, 2013 or 2014. So 72, 30, 40 years, yeah. Wow, I, I didn't even realize it was even that longer. Wow, so you were still there in 2013, 2014. So, you I mean, you went through the, the ruthless aggression era, the PG era, and even into whatever you want to call that, that era right after that PG era. I mean, it was kind of mm-hmm. like the, the middle era where they were trying to figure out what they wanted to do. But, wow, you were there from basically 72 to 2014. That is crazy if you yeah. just kind of think about that. Yeah, I went out uh... – I went out in 75 for 18 months. I came back in 77. And so that was 18 months I was out. And then I think I went out in 80 for a year. And then I came back. Yeah, so two and a half years in that time. What do you think about all the changes that were made through all those different eras and all the ups and, and the downs and kind of there through it all, really. I mean, really one of the, the longest mainstays in WWE history. Yeah, I guess. Well, you know, I didn't agree with with some of the stuff like Vincent. You know, when he started, he brought, 
you know, he brought everybody in, but, a, you know, a lot of guys, uh, you know, they were just big, you know, muscly guys, you know? Yeah, bodybuilders, yeah. Yeah, and uh, and then he went for the height guys, you know? So <laughs> instead of having just Undertaker on the card, you know, there was Undertaker and then there was Diesel and then the... Uh, there was a couple of other tall guys on, and then he went for the fat man deal. <laughs> so you had all these humongous guys out there, and and it was like, and it really didn't kick in after Hogan until Brett got the belt, you know, because mm-hmm. he could, and plus he could wrestle, he could tell a story. But even Brett, you know, when he came in, I wrestled him uh, quite a few times, you know. I enjoyed matches with him. And he'd tell a story. And, uh, but back then, you know, he wasn't making a lot of money. And that's what, you know, you're in the business to make money. Right. That, that's why I came here from New Zealand, but I didn't make a lot. I talked to an old timer. He was, uh, 27 years in the business, I think. He passed away a while back. But I got that. He made something like $330,000 in his career. He said, I'll tell people. I don't mind. And he was a main event in some places. He was a good worker, too. Well, the guys today are making that a year. Yeah, I know. I know, and more, and more. Now, that was a story uh, that comes to mind. I was an agent, right? So we're out in San Jose, and we got, we got a TV shoot, and we got a big house show there. So one of our up-and-coming stars that I kind of liked, and, and uh, it worked a half half-ass angle with somebody, and I can't remember who it was, but anyway, he got attacked at the ring, and he got hit on the head. So they sent me down to get him. And I said, now listen to me. Put your your arm on my shoulder. I'm not carrying you out. Put your arm on my shoulder. Hold the back of your head, because that's where you're being hurt. And do not look at the crowd and just go at my pace back to the um, backstage area out of the arena. So we're walking up. We're walking up. We got about two-thirds of the way. I said, stop. Don't look at the crowd. Just stop. Go down on one knee. (laughs) He gets up. We walk through the curtain, and the powers of that be, and some of the, are you okay? Are you okay? And he jumped. He said, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. And he took, they said, what do you do that for? And I said, I told him to do that. And you know what their response was for that? What? That was stupid. <laughs> Why? I convinced smart. So everybody good backstage in the whole arena what we're supposed to do 
and they said that was stupid. And these are the people running the show. Right, makes no sense on their part. Yeah, that's no. kind of silly. And there were some main eventers there too. And they looking at me like I'm nuts. Come on, that was great psychology. I know. That's what it is. I sometimes I used to convince the boys. Yeah, you know, they'd be watching the matches, you know, and I'd come out and they'd have you, Tony, you okay? I said, yeah, I'm fine. And that's thanks to Jack Briscoe. <laughs> tell him, telling me to sell. One of the all-time greats, no doubt about that. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Now, as we hit the wind-down button and head towards the finish, mm-hmm. since, since you've had such an illustrious career and, and so many great tag team matches and so many great matches. Do you have, besides maybe the Harley race match, do you have some matches that really kind of stick out to you? Maybe just some favorites or maybe even some favorite opponents? Yeah, well, I always enjoyed working single matches with Fuji. I learned a lot from Fuji. Um, it was a good match. That was star Billy Graham when he, when he defended his belt against me. I enjoyed those matches. There were, uh, you know, it wasn't like I was, um, you know, fighting for my life. You know, there was a good story told. Uh, so him and, and I enjoyed with Don Leo Jonathan and uh, Lonnie Main. That, that was a tough house match. <laughs> hmm. That felt like a shoot, <laughs> hmm. but it, you know, it didn't bother me. And, you know, I, I did enjoy working with Bret Hart, you know, when, uh, when he came, uh, you know, to work with Vince. Yeah. One of the all time best That for sure. No doubt about that. Yeah. He was, uh, he was really good. It's funny. I don't, I, I don't uh oh Ray Stevens too. So I could work with Ray Stevens blindfolded. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I like him. As yeah, far go ahead. I was gonna say, as far as kind of your tag career and thinking about you as like a tag specialist, just looking at all like the names you've worked with as, as far as tag team, you were a tag team partner of Pat Patterson, Renee Galay, Rick yeah. Martel, Larry Zabisco, we said Eddie Gilbert, Brian Blair, uh, Hextax Calhoun, Dean Ho, uh, so many mm-hmm. great. Do you have a favorite tag partner? Is that possible to say? Uh, it would be Rick Martel, no question. Yeah, it's just the, you know, we had the chemistry the and and the psychology because Rick, you know, when he, he very early in the business, he was over in New Zealand with Mark Lewin and Don Curtis, you know, and uh, Don Morocco was there too. But uh, Mark and uh, Curtis, they had great ring psychology, you know. So he learned a lot very young. Rick is ten years younger than me. And I, I think he was, he was the, in the business as long as me when we hooked up. <laughs> uh, so, wow, big veteran, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he was a veteran, that's for sure. 
when you look back at your career and let's just, you know, you're retired or it's all said and done and people are kind of looking back at your career like, wow, Tony Gurria, what do you kind of say is, is your legacy or your stamp on the wrestling business? Oh boy, that's a tough one there. I, I just used to, I think just used to go in there, just work hard and, and, and make it real. And, uh, you know, my um, the idea was to convince the fans, you know, that uh, they're seeing the real thing. One of the greatest tag team specialists of all time, absolute five-time WBF World Tag Team Champion with all different partners. And got to mention this, we didn't mention this before, on September 19th, hopefully everything is still going and running, you'll yeah. be with us. You'll be in Windsor Locks, Connecticut at the Wrestling Classic, a big wrestling convention. Hopefully that will happen. I mean, right now it says for sure and that everything will be cleared up by September. It actually might be the first big wrestling convention uh, going after all this ends. If, if you think about it, September might be like kind of the starting point, but that's going to be um, September 19th in Windsor Locks, Connecticut. Captain's Corner and K&S have the Wrestling Classic, a big wrestling convention. So you'll be with us up in Connecticut, hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll uh, be up in the wonderful state, state of Connecticut. That's, uh, I lived there for, I think, 40 years, but I can't take it anymore. <laughs> Your old stomping grounds. Yeah. Yeah. So as far as plugs, I know we're talking about the convention, but what about social media stuff? Do you do social media, anything like that, or you're kind of out of the loop on that kind of stuff? No, I'm, uh, I, get, I get on a little bit of Facebook, you know, and, and there's a group of people that I know. And basically, it's just like sending uh, – sending jokes and stuff to them, you know, like even my brother and my sister-in-law back in, uh, in, in the States. I mean, uh, back in New Zealand, Christ. Hmm. Um, you know, I just send them stuff and we kind of stay in touch with each other. When I got on this, my, my nieces and nephew, uh, in New Zealand asked me to get on. Oh, uncle Tony, get on Facebook. And blah, blah, blah. I had no idea what the hell it was. I thought, oh, that sounds good. Now, Jesus Christ, everything's good. <laughs> yeah. But it's good you get to, um, you, you know, keep up to date on a lot of stuff. Like, uh, unfortunately, you know, Howard Finkel passed away. And uh, yeah, I remember how, I, Howard, I still remember when I first met him at the uh, New Haven Coliseum. He was an usher up there. And a fan, you know, big fan. Uh, a lot of fun, fun memories of of the Fink. Oh yeah, yeah. He was uh, he was a great guy, and he do he, you know he do anything for you too, you know. Unfortunate, but hey, we've, that's what that's what we've got to look forward to. Right. Yeah. And technically, the first ever WWF employee for Vince Jr. If you if you want to get technical, yeah, yep, and created the WrestleMania name. So the Fink, you know, and besides being the greatest ring announcer in history, I mean, he's got his place in history in the WWF. That's for sure. Oh yeah, I remember Vince called me when the Bushwhackers were coming in, and they were the sheep herders. And Vince said, you know, 
that just jogged my memory. And Vince said, Tony, what are they? They got any wild animals down there? I said, no, Vince, all we got is birds, native birds, you know. And he said, well, what are, what are guys, you know, what do you do down there? Uh, what do guys do, you know, like macho type thing? I said, oh, they go hunting. And then when they go hunting, and they say, well, you know, you say, like, where's Tony? Well, he's gone bush, you know. And when I seen said bush, Howard popped up with bushwhacker. And that's how they got their name. Wow, look at him. Creative genius, Howard Finkel. Who knew? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is great. Uh, good stuff. And obviously, RIP to the Fink, uh, one of the all-time greats. WB Hall of Famer, of course, as well. And that's actually before you know, I let you go. One other question, which is like shocking to me, and I forgot. I actually forgot to bring it up earlier. You're not in the WB Hall of Fame. How in the hell is that even possible? I don't know. I've never. Uh, a couple of years ago, I might. I I got a call from. I ah, forget his name. He he's in talent. He was in talent relations. I Mark Carano. Yeah, yeah, and he left a message, but I was in New Zealand, you know, and I uh, somehow I got a message back, or I may not have, but I attempted to get a message back, and then when I got here, um, you know, I called and left the message, you know, and I never heard anything more, but... I had a funny feeling that that might have been something to do with, um, you know, the Hall of Fame. Uh, but I don't know for sure. But nobody's actually from the office has mentioned it. That is, it's just it's shocking. Like, when you think about it, like, you figure you'd have been in back in the 90s, like when they kind of first started it out or maybe when they brought it back in the early uh, 2000s. Like, it's like shocking that you're not in. It's so weird. Like, who's in and, and who's not in? Like, is it just kind of whoever Vince Jr. thinks about at the time? I, I have no bloody idea. I know. But they did ask me to put the Valiant Brothers in in one of the early Hall of Fames, which I did. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I'm not I'm not losing any sleep over it. it, <laughs> it yeah. No. I, hey, well, I think you should be in there. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I'm not that old yet. That's maybe that's why. Hey, hopefully, yeah, hopefully that's hopefully that's the reason because uh, definitely should be in there for sure. There's no doubt about that, Tony. It's no, been uh, it's been awesome having you on. It's been quite an honor. One of the all-time greats. There's no doubt about it. You like you said from that old school era where the guys really worked the psychology. You guys were the masters of it. Yeah, and like the old guys used to say, they used to have how much money can you make? It's not what you make, kid. It's how much you save. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.